Hi, everybody. Welcome to IAB Real, our podcast where the leaders of the IAB get together to discuss what's important, what's next, and how we should all prepare. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dave Grimaldi. He is our executive vice president in charge of policy. He's coming to us from Washington, D.C., where he is hanging out on the Hill, although virtually much of the time these days, as opposed to in person. Dave Grimaldi, welcome to IAB Real. Brad, thank you. I'm excited and it is good to uh, to be on board to talk about what has been a crazy year and what will be uh, an even more unpredictable uh, and wild ride in, in, uh, in your nation's capital. That is what we're here to talk about today. I was thinking about the Hamilton song, What Comes Next, when King George comes on stage and says, okay, you're free. Uh, do you know what you're going to do? Do you know how hard it is to lead? Uh, that is the question that I think is is popping around in my head. The election was 16 days ago. Uh, the the Democrats claimed victory two Saturdays ago. The idea that it's only 16 days since the election it feels like six months minimum. The the level of time dilation that we've had for this year, pretty much since the pandemic, uh, although really for the last four years, is is, is remarkable. Here's what we know right now. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 18th. Uh, we know that it seems like the Biden administration is barreling towards uh, taking office in January. Biden is certainly acting this way. Uh, President Trump's, uh, President-elect Biden, President Trump's uh, kind of the lady doth protest too much, me thinks, fulminations seem to be getting slightly um, less, uh, less profound. Um, and and Biden is starting to name people to the White House and to the uh, the administration uh, that is look that we're looking forward to learning more about. Do you have any insights based on the people that he's already named, either to the White House or to the administration, Dave? Any insights that um, will give us any pointers about what's coming? So. Unfortunately, well, unfortunately, not with the insight and kind of probative value to predict as we would like. Um, Biden's announcements for his West Wing and his transition teams uh, show a very stable, experienced, and seasoned group of political and policy professionals. His West Wing with Ron Klain and Jen O'Malley Dillon um, and, uh, and Dan Remus and others are all of an age and with a lens on DC that shows continuation stability. Um, none of them are panicky, reactive personalities. Uh, and I really think that that's probably what a, a large swath of America is hoping for out of this White House and this administration following such, love him or hate him, a turbulent four years under President Trump. There is not a, there is not yet a name that has been released in terms of a possible Federal Trade Commission chair or a Federal Communications Commission chair that would be able to, that, that would allow us to start to make predictions or scope out a roadmap for how Biden regulation 
under independent agencies and cabinet agencies could take shape. Those will probably come out after he starts to do the traditional rollout of the big, big the big four cabinet agencies, state, treasury, defense, and uh, the Attorney General, Department of Justice. Those are usually the next four that will come. When we learn who President-elect Biden's director of the National Economic Council will be, and the NEC is that West Wing entity that dictates the president's economic policies in all of the major segments of American industry, um, telecommunications and technology and media being under the director of the National Economic Council, uh, we will start to be able to figure out where Biden is going to go uh, on regulation that involves our industry. Uh, the transition team names are out there for the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Trade Commission. At the FCC, my former boss, um, former acting chairwoman, Mignon Clyburn, is one of the uh, heads of that agency transition. So I'm very excited about that. And she's incredibly pragmatic um, uh, and was at the FCC for, for eight plus years. So she's, she is a, a tremendous um, advisor to the president-elect on this. But we still don't know if it's going to be a leaning in, progressive, um, privacy-centric uh, uh, nomination for chairs of those agencies. When we do, we'll be able to chart our course a little bit more. And it's funny, Brad, you, in mentioning the White House, just to go a touch further here, um, we came, if you look at the, at the last two administrations, three really, George W. Bush was deregulatory. Technology and telecom were not, uh, and privacy were not cornerstones of his administration. We then went into eight years of President Obama, who could not get enough of innovation, Silicon Valley, um, nascent technologies, millennial ideas and creativity. He, there are pictures of him at a dinner table with Steve Jobs, with Mark Zuckerberg, with all, just, just soaking in like a sponge, like, like President Obama used to do, all that he could about our industry and how it was changing the world. And from 2008 and 2016, it really did. And, and it was a love affair. And he was visiting tech incubators and he was doing South by Southwest events on the South Lawn. And, and it was just a thousand flowers blooming. And then after the 2016 election and all of the unbelievable fear and demagoguery and foreign interference and everything else that came from that, uh, our industry's perception in Washington has done, I wouldn't say a 180, I'd say maybe a 120, not totally turning around in the other direction, but I, we can touch on all of these things in the time that we have today, uh, antitrust and conservative bias and the perils of, of data, of personal data online, where it goes, how it's used, who controls it, who owns it. And President Trump, just to carry the theme of these, of these White Houses, I, has been even more deregulatory, I think, than George W. Bush, and has leaned leaned even further back from our issues and our industry. That has its inherent upsides and positives. Uh, letting innovation just go and go, and letting new companies sprout up, new uh, uh, sharing economy um, uh, leaders. That all happens in a deregulatory environment. But with that deregulation, we have seen state privacy laws pop up. We have seen Senate hearings with uh, tempers flaring about how data is being used. We don't care that it's being used 
to allow people to share pictures with their grandparents. There's too many risks here. So we will see after, after four years of President Trump not really mentioning any of this in one State of the Union, not really mentioning this in any speeches uh, of consequence in front of technology companies. He was president, his priorities were elsewhere. That's fine, he won. That's what elections allow. Will Joe well, Biden, who's older, be different? Older by, uh, by a smidge, but the, I would say the interesting irony here is that you know, Trump, although he's been uh, less interested in regulating our industry, has been one of the most powerful individual users of uh, social media. Mm. You know, he's he is a brilliant user of Twitter in particular, and then in his campaign, uh, the Republican National Committee in general was brilliant at how they used Facebook. Not necessarily. Um, truthful, but brilliant in how they used used these mm -hmm. platforms. And so I just want to know if there's any, if, I mean, I don't relish the irony, I just note the irony that deregulation and yet an acute skill at using a non-regulated mm -hmm. uh, set of platforms. Do you think that's going to change with the next administration? It, it is, it, it's, you seized on a question that is of such tremendous hobby interest for me. Uh -huh. I am, um, I'm a creature of Washington. I've, I've been, in, in government and around government in Washington for, for you know, many, many years. And I am acutely aware, as are most here, and you are, of how many checkoffs from the president's advisors have to go onto the top of a draft presidential statement. There's usually, in the West Wing, a strip along the top of a hard copy of a presidential statement or even just utterance that has to be checked off by everyone who holds the rank of assistant to the president. Mm. And that's the assistant for legislative affairs, the uh, White House counsel, the assistant for domestic policy, all of his top advisors have to review it and check it off. Over the past four years, we have seen the president of the United States circumvent all of that and speak do directly to the world, to America and the world via Twitter. For someone who really studies this sort of thing, uh, is that fascinating? Is that reckless, dangerous, refreshing, cool? Pick your adjective. For me, it's all of them. It's all of them, right? You have you have someone who's can utter one sentence and flip the stock market, start a war, uh, cause people to run to the supermarket, and the president used that to his advantage. And I think remember, President Trump lost the election, but he got 71 million right. votes. That's, that is a, people need to just pause and think about that. While Joe Biden got more, they both got more than anyone in history. And that means that President Trump's style resonated. The fact that he wasn't packaged by a team of advisors, the fact that he was uncensored and raw, it certainly made me put his Twitter alerts on my on my iPhone so that I knew exactly when he said something and when he said it. I, I think that that is, will, will we see that in a Biden administration? I think absolutely not. I think we will go back to order uh, and uh, decorum and presidential messaging and issue campaigns and rollouts and platforms that are uh, done in a way that allows the media to learn about them ahead of time. And I think I'm going to interrupt you because 
I think that that's where they're they are going to go natively. But I don't think that Trump or his base are going away. And even if there is an orderly transition, which I pray that there will be, that you know the the back bench is still going to be very loud. And I think that unless unless the Biden team gets a kind of SWAT response team for social media, it doesn't have to be Biden himself. But unless they're paying very, very close attention, uh, that they're they're going to have trouble guiding the national conversation if if the the old guy whose uh, indifference to norms like you know Obama it took three years before he started speaking out uh, you know conventionally the losing party doesn't then and the former president uh, conventionally doesn't talk a lot we can't expect that. Uh, with with President Trump, and so I think uh, I'm I'm just going to quarrel with you in a very slight way, which is I predict that we're going to see a social media response team from the White House that's going to be very active, and if we don't, that that's going to be a big problem. I I, I think you're well. I, I think that you're, it, the paradigm has shifted. Do two wrongs make a right? Do you turn the other cheek? Everything that I learned in my Catholic education over the years. Or as we saw in the first presidential debate, do you work, do you fight fire with fire? Do you rip a forehand back over the net when somebody insults you? We saw that in the first debate, and I think that most people in America were disgusted by the conduct of both candidates, well, the president of, and of, of um, the former vice president. And I think, Brad, that you have a point. They, I, I believe there has to be, now that President Trump will be angry and restless and um, with a massive media following at his disposal, he will not go quietly into the night and go play golf uh, and write a book and, and fade. So does that mean that the Biden communications uh, shop in the White House needs and the Democratic National Committee needs to fight back with quippy, uh, biting, sharp tweet replies? I, I, almost, I, I hope not. I hope that it's not a race to the bottom that way. Uh, again, I'm very romantic about this industry in the days of, 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 of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill and, uh, and, and the debates that, that we saw in the past between, I mean, uh, you can go back to both Bushes and, and President Clinton and that civility. I think that the way that you just framed that um, is very likely to happen and it will be horrifically uncivil and it will be more photoshopping of pictures and it will be more distortion. Um, and yes, I think that that is, is just another, we're just going to descend more into madness. But I, I will say uh, there, President Trump was elected for a reason. Every president is elected because of a buildup in American sentiment about something. And it, it, it's hard to put your finger on it as it's happening. Many people say it was Hillary Clinton's unfavorables. Many people say it was after eight years of a progressive African-American and America went in a certain direction. Now they're going in this direction. Well, what will happen under, under President Biden and Vice President Harris? Are they going to go back to progressive policies that's going to, again, incite that part of the electorate um, and with President Trump kind of picking at them from the sidelines? We will have to wait and see. But next year, uh, a, you, you really seized on it a post-presidential Donald Trump who, who will not accept that he lost uh, is going to be vocal and it could be ghastly 
but we will see how Biden and his team reacts. Well, and I think that that leads us nicely into the sort of the next kind of twin scenario question that I, I have for you. And this is about the Senate. We have two possible scenarios. Um, the first, which is uh, a bit more likely, just given the history of the electorate in Georgia, is that the Grand Ole Party is going to hold on to the Senate. It'll be a slimmer majority, uh, but that they'll have you know 52 to 48, um, and that there'll be it'll be difficult for um, the Biden administration to get legislation done, since uh, Mitch McConnell gleefully refers to himself as the Grim Reaper when it comes to putting things through. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is that Stacey Abrams continues to rally the Democratic base in Georgia and that we squeak by uh, with both of the, uh, 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 the Democratic nominees for Senate from Georgia and that for, two, that for the next two years, we have um, a sweep where the Democrats control the executive branch and both chambers. Um, Statistically speaking, it seems more likely that we're going to continue to have a divided government. To me, um, you're, of course, you live there. What do you think? It's there. One thing I, I realized, um, I'm a house guy. Uh, and one thing I realized being in, in, a, in a leadership office in a senior role under Congressman Jim Clyburn, uh, from whom I, le I learned so much, I, in being in close quarters with with the person I'm about to reference, um, you can. There's two people in Washington you can never underestimate. Used to you, used to be one just because I was around her so much. Nancy Pelosi, who knows the caucus and the Congress, the sub caucuses of Democratic um, members, Congressional Black Caucus, Congressional Hispanic Caucus, Pennsylvania members, rural members. The other person is Mitch McConnell, and. His strategic mind and mastery of the Senate, I think, will prompt probably a whole new set of Robert Caro books along the lines of what we saw for Lyndon Johnson. Um, I think that it, we, will, we will not be to the outcome of those races in a couple of months, on those races, and then I'll go back to the Senate uh, in a moment. I, there will be over, well over $100 million spent by both sides for John Ossoff and, and, and Raphael Warnock. Um, the challengers. The question I think many are pondering is, do Trump's voters come out if Trump isn't on the ballot? Do these, does the same giant following I uh, emerge for Senate races, not on November 3rd, not on a big November day? Uh, he is already tweeting to come and support them and put everything that they have behind I. Uh, 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 Leffler and Purdue, but uh, I don't know if the turnout happens. Does it happen on the Democratic side? Since Joe Biden won, are Democrats invigorated? Southern Democrats, Southern urban Democrats, are they invigorated? Do they want more? Is this the time to really get a revolution going? I, when you when you think of a a a, a Jewish American and an African American, both Democrats, possibly winning the two Georgia Senate seats it really is emblematic of the year that we are in. Uh, and, I, I, and, and should they come out uh, and with the Senate in the balance and Democratic controls the Senate in the balance, um, there is a real chance that both could win. I think the odds are against them. I, uh, my, I, I was 
hoping and praying for another candidate named Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, yeah. my former colleague, in the uh, uh, former staffer colleague in the in the Clyburn office who took on Lindsey Graham, raised more money in uh, for his race Jamie did than in the history of Senate political fundraising and and still lost, you know, by not a not not a few percentage points, but a, more than more than a few. The South is, uh, is the South, and um, it's old traditions and uh, and. And, and Purdue and Leffler are well liked. So it's an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle. But back to Mitch McConnell, he will, over the next two months, between now and those races, you are looking at the twilight of the Trump administration with many nominees pending, with, with troop drawdowns in the mix, with Trump wanting to leave some sort of legacy, I think. Is that legacy going to be one of flailing for two months? to just go out with a bang, a big bang, maybe a bad bang. Unclear, but Mitch McConnell is going to be one of his, well, has always been one of his VIPs in Washington, and we'll see how that unfolds. So let's continue with the Senate. You know, I've been thinking that the in the primary, you know, people were, you know, pundits were, were talking about, well, you know, this is a way for Cory Booker to get set up to be, you know, one of the big cabinet posts. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, people kept on talking about her for, for the FTC or the FCC. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm just thinking, well, wouldn't Biden be making a big mistake to pull popular senators out of the Senate when it's such a razor thin, uh, you know, majority for either side, no matter what the outcome of, of Georgia? So you know, I think that the the concrete question I have is what would Elizabeth Warren being asked to head up the FCC mean for our industry? And then the sort of the follow-up question is, wouldn't it be smarter for Biden to pick a couple of Republican senators to uh, to make, uh, you know, cabinet posts or significant appointments in, in the, the executive branch in order to destabilize the Senate? You know, Biden knew the Senate for decades. So starting with the Warren question, and then we are, I do have some more boring but important questions about CCRA and Section 2230, but I, I, this whole notion of three-dimensional chess with the Senate, what do you think is going to happen? It's uh, very, very, very compelling stuff. Um, is there, you, have seen a, um, you have seen a tradition of presidents picking at least one uh, one member of the opposite party for a significant cabinet post. The, the memorable ones, I think in recent memory, are Bill Clinton picking um, Bill Cohen, a Republican uh, senator for his Secretary of Defense. And Senate Republicans love that. And of course, you know, he's one of theirs. He's a senator. So that the Senate approved him, confirmed him, uh, and all was well. And he was a great secretary. Uh, President Obama picked Senator Chuck Hagel, a Republican, for his Secretary of Defense. President Obama also had Ray LaHood as his Transportation Secretary, who, who was um, a, a wonderful Republican member of, uh, of, the, of the House of Representatives and, um, and, and got along with the President very, very well. I, I, we certainly didn't see any Democrats in Trump's cabinet. I don't think anybody really expected that when he came into office, but should... Um, should Biden do that to mollify himself to Republicans? Of course. 
Will he pick a progressive for any of the big four? There's been rumors about Elizabeth Warren at Treasury. I think that that would be a confirmation battle royal that should the Senate remain Republican, um, she would she would uh, like lose. Lose, have no chance. Um, so you look at the Attorney General, the Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, um, all of the names being floated for those are Democrats. But as you get kind of farther down the cabinet, um, who is likely? I Unclear, but I think that Biden also has to look to the liberal uh, block of this party and in Congress, the rise of progressive younger members in urban centers and suburban areas, the, um, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes of the party who are so savvy on social media, who have such followings, who feel that their candidates uh, were, were rolled a little bit by the Democratic Party. Um, Bernie Sanders yet again, uh, having such a great following and then and then losing at the end. Uh, it was to Hillary Clinton four years ago. Now it's to Joe Biden, both older, both more moderate. So I think Joe Biden is really going to have to look to them and pick some cabinet secretaries who share the progressive part of the Democratic Party's principles, beliefs, hopes and dreams, et cetera. That goes down obviously to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Climate's such a big issue. It's, uh, it, was, it was really um, changed, quote unquote, under Donald Trump and the climate change experts and priorities over the last four years. They really want that to roll back um, this way. So he'll have to take a deep look at that. Um. I, I am uh, getting the signal we have just a few minutes left. So let, let, let a couple of sort of practical, tactical questions. Um, CCRA, the California, uh, I think, Consumer Rights Act passed, uh, although not by quite as overwhelming a margin as people thought it would. It's a follow-up to the CCPA. For the people in our audience who don't follow this that closely, what is it, why does something happening in California matter to the rest of the country? Uh, excellent question, Brian. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the CPRA, the California Privacy Rights Act, was passed via a ballot initiative uh, on election day. It follows the California Consumer Protection Act, CCPA, that was passed. It started as ballot initiative. It was passed as a, as a law. It became a law in California uh, and set the, and, and, and was immediately established as the, as the leading uh, privacy law of the country. It became, Congress has not passed a comprehensive piece of privacy reform. California Consumer Privacy Act stepped into that void and became the de facto privacy law in America. It, um, again, they, both of these started uh, via ballot initiatives because California um, election law allows that with a certain amount of signatures. And CCPA established new transparency and consumer protections uh, and new methods of handling and governance uh, of consumer data uh, under the thresholds of, 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 of sizes for companies and, and, and how, many, uh, how much data they handled for consumers. And we were active in Sacramento, IAB was, in discussing the, the draft legislation with the California Assembly and California and we have since been uh, very active, Michael Hahn, IAB's general counsel, in helping our companies learn how to comply with CCPA. 
Uh, we will and and the reason it's important for companies outside of California to comply with CCPA, it's the same as the, the GDPR in the um, CCPA, and then you were, thank you for the correction, CPRA for the new one, uh, is that the internet doesn't respect borders. And so if you're in, even if you're in Arizona or in Delaware, if you, if you are a, an internet company and you violate uh, CCPA or CPRA, then California comes after you. Is that is that the idea, or is it correct? Um, something correct. else. If you're that, that's exactly well. No, you 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 seized on, you seized on the um the the cross border aspect of of the of the internet, uh, and and you need to understand that if you have a certain amount of users um for a product, then you handle data from a certain amount of consumers, um, and some of those consumers are in California. Uh, CCPA is triggered. Uh, and it, it, it the, 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 I'll go quickly through the threshold. Companies that serve California residents and they have at least 25 million in, in annual revenue have to comply with CCPA. Um, and additionally, uh, companies of any size that have personal data of on at least 50,000 people or that collect more than half of their revenues from the sale of, of personal data also fall under that law. So if you have uh, 99% of your users in California, one of them is outside of California, uh, or a company, I'm sorry, that's outside of California that is serving Cal uh, California um, consumers to those thresholds, they must be in compliance. And it took a lot of companies, especially small and mid-sized ones, by surprise because a six-person gardening blog likely does not have an inside lawyer. It likely has an outside a law firm that helps them just with your basic paperwork, incorporation paperwork, et cetera. But all of a sudden, you're now going to have to follow a privacy law if you have a certain amount of consumers that is, uh, if you're in Nebraska, that is um, half a country away. And what IAB has been doing has really been banging on the United States Congress to do what it's there for, to look at a massive segment of the economy and, and the need for consumers to be further protected and to have their data go where they think it's going to go and to be extremely transparent about that. And Congress has not had the momentum, the expertise, uh, nor the motivation to pass a law that would be one national standard instead of one in California, one in Rhode Island, one in Texas. And we continue and we hope that when the new Congress, the 117th Congress, is sworn in in January that we can restart and jumpstart those conversations about national privacy law, but the CCPA. So the is national privacy. So, so, so mm -hmm. let me just, if I can, bottom line this. Right now, we have an increasing level of complexity and compliance where uh, California, large part of the economy, um, is driving things in the absence of federal standardization. And so IAB's position is if we can get a federal privacy law, it will be simpler, it will allow innovation to thrive, it will reduce the complexity of compliance, uh, and, uh, and that therefore uh, the, the, our industry will be able to grow, uh, but not just our industry, but also all of the startups, all of the D2C brands, all of the, the, the smaller uh, publishers and bloggers, et cetera. So that we, we, the, the barrier here is there's too many individual states and municipalities that are creating legislation and it's becoming an, uh, an impossible hurdle for companies large and small. 100% correct. If you are a consumer and you get on a plane at LaGuardia and you get off at LAX, what do you need to know about your user experience? How does it change? What opt-outs do you need to click or toggle? 
if you're a company, how do you plan to comply with multiple state laws in different states? What is your legal exposure, et cetera? What CPRA did, Brad, is, as you brought up a moment ago on November 3rd, was basically put a moat around CCPA to establish a brand new privacy agency in California uh, to protect CCPA because when CCPA was passed, many in industry, us included, uh, were upset that we were not given the opportunity um, to craft the law and to give industry uh, perspective but before it became a law. Uh, and in protecting the digital ecosystem, we need to, like any industry, have a seat at the table to go through a deliberative process that allows notice and comment and testimony and academia to weigh in and the CEOs of, 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 of leading companies to weigh in and privacy experts and consumer experts to weigh in. And we wanna advocate all of those positions and to talk about what works and what doesn't work. And on November 3rd, Californians voted on a materially different law than CCPA. And we now have, not, not even a year after CCPA was enacted, uh, a new law and a new regulatory process that will put everybody back to the drawing board uh, in terms of compliance. Um, and that just is not good for anyone. Uh, it, 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 certainty, predictability, the ability to, to innovate, to, to develop a product, to develop content um, is, is what companies expect and quite frankly, what they're owed under um, a booming American economy that uses data um, like uh, the, the industries of, 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 of centuries ago. And we are now becoming a regulated industry and we embrace that and the responsibility um, and the heaviness that comes with it. And you look at pharmaceuticals and tobacco and others, data is now under just as scrutinizing a hot light and a microscope. And we take that role very seriously, but we have to be able um, to advise our companies, um, be they enormous ones like Google or small ones like, um, like a website about phishing that has 500,000 subscribers and uses data to monetize itself and provide its products, uh, it's only fair. And that is why we are pushing in Congress for one law of the land. And we're hoping the Senate and the House and the incoming Biden team uh, will work with us on it. Well, Dave Grimaldi, I have one more question, which I'm going to tee up and then I'm going to say something else, which is the prediction for whether or not something tends with something fun, uh, whether or not we can expect to see uh, former presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg join the administration and what your guess is, uh, whether or not he will and wh what that would be. In the meantime, for those of you who are listening who are thinking, oh my gosh, I need to know more. Uh, oh my gosh, this is complicated. How is this going to affect my business? Um, the, the first place to go is IAB.com. Uh, there is uh, a myriad resources there. The second place is to reach out to me or to Dave. Uh, my email address is brad at IAB.com. Dave, if you're willing to, how would people get in touch with you uh, if they Dave want to know at IAB.com. Sure, just Dave at IAB.com. Uh, I could talk about this stuff for days and I, 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 I welcome uh, questions and comments. And we will be pursuing this again. I will uh, be trying to drag Mr. Grimaldi back onto this podcast uh, in the new year. And also please mark your calendars. Our annual leadership meeting will dig into a lot of this and that will be the week of March 8th. So uh, before we go, Mr. Grimaldi, uh, 
just because he was such an outspoken advocate in the waning days of the campaign. Any predictions on former mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, uh, as in a place in the administration for Biden? I, I will tell you, Brad, I thought that we would see the first gay cabinet secretary under President Obama. I thought that in his second term, when you're leaving a legacy and when you are doing things that no one has ever done, that President Obama would be the first uh, to nominate and hopefully get uh, confirmed a gay cabinet secretary. Possibly not, not where there would be the knockdown dragouts in the Senate uh, that would be so ugly with so many um, tempers flaring. I mean, not for the Secretary of Defense or the Attorney General, but Secretary of Labor, Secretary of HUD, Secretary of Health and Human Services. He didn't do it. Um, I was hoping every time a cabinet secretary stepped down, especially in the second term, we would see that. President Biden, I think, should be the president to break that glass ceiling. There are some unbelievable uh, intellects out there, uh, Mayor Buttigieg being, I think, you know, first among equals. And I certainly hope um, that we see that uh, for the first time ever. So I'm keeping fingers crossed. You've, we have seen an African-American woman as attorney general. We have seen um, uh, all kinds of different demographics uh, in different cabinet posts. We have not seen, Brad, I will also tell you, we've not seen an African-American woman named to the Supreme Court. I'm hoping that we see that during a Biden administration. I think there's a real chance of that. Um, but the first gay, gay cabinet secretary, I think, is is, uh, is is something that we will hopefully and likely see. But no specific predictions, which is okay. Uh, I don't know which agency. I, I, I can't go deep on which it would be. He, he is just such a brilliant guy. I think he would work for any of them. I think his age may be a factor here. Um, what the dynamics would be for Senate confirmation, the outlook, again, what happens in those Georgia races where we started uh, uh, our conversation. A lot of dynamics here, but um, uh, I think he will he would excel anywhere uh, he is. Dave Grimaldi, IAB's EVP of Policy. Thank you so much for joining us. IAB Real is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Carrie Villanueva, Holly Miller, and Jasmine Rogers. Thank you so much for coming and listening to us, and we'll look forward to seeing you again in the near future. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>